Welcome to Heroes of Brand Protection Podcast, Episode 30. I'm your host, Daniel Shapiro, Senior Vice President of Strategic Partnerships here at Redpoints, the world's fastest growing digital revenue recovery platform with a mission to make the internet safer for both brands and consumers. In this podcast, we will share stories and industry insights from some of the leading experts in brand protection and anti-counterfeiting from many different industries. We are so happy you could join us today, and please check out all of our episodes on www.redpoints.com forward slash podcast. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with Stephen Lee, Chief IP Counsel at Target for the past 19 years. Our guest always knew he wanted to be a lawyer. However, he never really envisioned working in the IP sector. He first started in law firms involved in litigation matters, and after some time, Stephen realized he would rather focus on the IP practice, and that's what he's done ever since, both at private law firms as well as in-house lawyer. We also asked Stephen if he could be any animal, which one would he want to be? Well, tune in to discover what he said. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Stephen. Looking forward to our discussion and learning more about how, how you got here. Great to join you today. So maybe just as a sort of icebreaker question for you, this way people get to know you better. But if you could be an animal, uh, what animal would you be and why? Wow, that's a big one to lead off with. Well, there's nothing that deep in it. I would probably be a pug dog. We used to have a pug. My <laughs> wife loves pugs. She loves them, whether they're our own or somebody else's. People either love or hate that breed, think they're ugly. We think they're terribly cute. She has all sorts of pug things. So if I was another animal and I'm not her husband, she would love me even more because that was our first child when we had our dog Hercules way back when he's passed and she always wants another one. And so if I had to be something other than her husband, I'd be a pug because I know I would be loved a lot by her. That's awesome. And I think it's a good choice. I think that demonstrates the good family man you are. Very nice. And as you think through, Stephen, your career of both in your current role and in previous roles, is there a particular, like, I'll say a funny experience that maybe sometimes you're out having a beer or you're with some friends that you sort of repeat this story. It's one of those crazy things that happened while you were working somewhere. Well, these are great questions, Daniel. I would just say, I mean, just overall, when you're talking about the career, I think it's just funny that I'm where I am today and an IP lawyer leading an intellectual property team. I never envisioned being an intellectual property attorney. I always wanted to be a lawyer. I thought I wanted to be a litigator, go to court and argue things. I am not good at math or science. I can balance a checkbook. I can do a little bit of probability statistics, but boy, math was not my forte. Science was not my forte. I was a liberal arts undergraduate major focusing on philosophy and ethics, thinking I was going to go to law school. Did not envision in how I ended up doing what I've done. And it's just been a fun journey, both from private practice to ending up at Target in each step along the way. And it was just seeing an opportunity, taking it, learning a new area and saying, hey, I kind of like this. I like, I love intellectual. I can't see myself doing anything else but intellectual property law right now. That's awesome. And maybe that leads me to my next question, which I was going to ask is, what did you want to be when you grew up? As you think about yourself as a young kid or kid going to college, you sort of touched on that, but is that sort of what you wanted to do or were you thinking something else with your liberal arts background? I, I definitely thought I was going to be a lawyer. I was not going to be a professor teaching ethics or doing philosophy. It was good for thinking. And I always knew, and the, you know, the running idea is just take anything in undergraduate, 
take the LSAT, get good grades, score well, and you'll get into law school. So enjoy what you want to do undergraduate and take a wide variety of courses. And that's why I did liberal arts. I, I always, for the most part, thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I always loved public speaking. I was involved in debate in high school, speech and debate in high school, drama, plays, because it kind of understood what I was good at and what my limitations were. Like I said, I was never really good at math and science. I'm not an athlete. I'm not artistic. So it kind of narrowed down over time. The one thing I could do well was talk and argue with folks and debate fed into that. And people said, wow, you're a really good debater. Think about law. And so, you know, TV shows, and I'm going to date myself way back when, you know, Matlock, LA Law, watching those litigators, all glamorous, arguing, trapping people in, in what they're saying. I'm like, I, I think I can do that. It feels like cross-examination and debate. So I always thought, hey, I'm going to be a lawyer, undergraduate, just kind of pathed my way through that and got into law school. And, you know, the rest is, they say, history. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about that journey. So as you knew that law school was the path, what happens in that journey? Or maybe you get your law degree, you pass the bar, you know, you take your first job. How does it sort of, how do you wind into this space? Yeah. Especially intellectual property, no clue. I mean, again, I'm dating myself. Intellectual property was, it was out there. There was always intellectual property, but the courses, I went to the University of Texas for law school. There weren't a whole lot of courses specifically geared towards intellectual property. I mean, it is really, the industry has grown, the field has grown, there's more people involved in it. So every school has, especially ones that want to put their name on the map, they have an intellectual property program. They have practicums, they have courses, they have seminars, all this stuff. I, I had no clue what intellectual property was about. I mean, I took an entertainment law class. I, you know, I just went through law school and went through the motions, took the courses that I was supposed to, took some electives that I liked. But I did sit next to a guy next to me. We were seated alphabetically our second, third year, whatever. And I was sitting next to him in a general course. And I'm Lee. His name was Kwan. He was a Korean gentleman. And I saw him looking at patent drawings. And I, I'm like, what are, you, what are you doing? That's not law, right? These were schematics of circuits or something. And it was at the time they had some sort of patent drafting course. And he explained to me that he was an engineer. He was going to law school to become a patent lawyer. And I'm like, that is something I am going to run from. Stay as far away from us as possible. This intellectual property thing. Again, knew my limitations of math and science. And that was my view of intellectual property law. You're going to be a patent lawyer looking at those schematics, doing things like that. That's nothing that I could do. So I, I didn't gravitate towards it at all and just took the generalist course of, of law school. And, and what I tell even law students today is, you know, law school has changed and you can definitely focus more, but you don't really major in law school. You just take the courses. You've got certain courses you need to take that are required. You can take some electives, you pass the bar, and then that's when your practice starts, right? When you land your first job. And so how you select that first job is really important. What are you going to do? Are you going to be a generalist? Is it a big firm, small firm? Are you going to public service? Not really many opportunities changed a little bit that you come in-house. That's not really that open. So I landed at a very, fortunately landed at a big firm here in the Twin Cities. I interviewed and got a summer clerkship here at what used to be known two mergers ago as Fagri and Benson and worked here in my second year of law school did the whole 12 week summer and rotated through different practices and, and really enjoyed, which I tell law students again, you know, law is a trade and you will learn it on the job. Whatever position they put you in and practice group, you will learn the job there. Yeah. And so maybe following up on that, which I think, by the way, is not only your story, but certainly probably story of a lot of law, law students, as you mentioned, as you give them this sort of feedback and thinking about it, because I think sometimes we as young kids, we're always stressed out knowing what we want to be, right? We got to know, we got to be able to tell our parents what we're going to be, right? We don't know the answer to that question. But so now you get your first job at the, the law firm. 
was it in intellectual property or was it in some general law area or where were you in that first job? Yeah, great question. Immediately pigeonholed into intellectual property. And it's not necessarily by choice. Uh, During my summer clerkship, the group that I wanted to go through, I rotated through was employment law. I like employment law because it was litigation focused. It was statutory. And I got to sit through some depositions, some trials, interviews with clients, some fact gathering, some research. And it was kind of, there was a lot of drama involved. A lot of, it was some discrimination cases. It was just fascinating what you could do and, and applying statutory law to it. So it, it had a little bit of everything that I thought as a 2L, second year law student, that would be really cool. So after that, they say, we want to make you an offer. What groups would you like to be in? And I, I did do a, an intellectual property rotation through the business litigation team group here. Did some intellectual property projects, actually did a target project, worked on a couple projects. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Trademark law, interesting saw some patent stuff. I'm like, again, don't think I'm going to ever do patent law. So I declared that I wanted to be join the employment labor group at Fagery. They didn't have an opening. They said, well, you like litigation. Why don't you join the business litigation group there? I'm like, okay, that sounds litigation-y. Well, then why don't you do patent litigation? And so for the first two years of my career, I was doing patent litigation. Again, I'll say it again. Somebody who's not very technical was doing patent litigation, which was, was something. But I, so I had a mixed practice when I started out. So I, I automatically got put into an area, business litigation, patent litigation. But they said, you like other things. Um, why don't, on the side, you have a practice, a transactional practice, soft IP, trademarks, copyrights, licensing, do a little bit of both. And so I did that for the first two years. Quickly realized I'm not a litigator. I didn't want to be a litigator. I didn't like that lifestyle. So litigation is you're gearing up towards trial, all of this hard work that's going on. And then you have a partner running into your office 11th hour. Stop all your work. Stop building. We're going to settle. There's a settlement on the table. And so you just have to come to a crashing halt. A lot of patent litigation didn't go to trial, at least when I was starting off. It's settled, right? It's all about leverage and negotiation to settle the case. So I would stop working on everything and then turn to my soft IP practice, right? Trademark prosecution, more regular, predictable kind of stuff. And then partner would run back in the office. It all fell apart. Start working again, gear up again. And so we're getting ready for trial again. And so this up and down of a litigator's lifestyle, I didn't really like that much. And the peaks and valleys, there was no valley because I had a transactional practice on the side that I was trying to develop. So anytime I had a, came up for air because litigation was slow or it was in settlement, I had my transactional practice to work on. And so I said, look, I don't really want to be a litigator. I don't want to be a patent litigator. Can I just focus on the soft intellectual property transactional side, working on that predictable deadlines, building something? And they, they agreed to that. And so I started developing that practice for the next two years. And then what happens to you, Stephen? Then how do you yeah. sort of move it? So now you're doing this in the in the law firm business. At what point do you continue this journey in this IP trade? Yeah, great question. It's the whole my whole life story of law. So I I was at Fagery for the next two years doing what I like to do and was developing that practice. In fact, the firm had told me said, "Look, we would like you to lead this group at some point." You know, so I'm a second year associate being developed to lead the intellectual property practice that was like non-patent practice. And, I, and that was great. I mean, I have a career path towards partners. I mean, everything's just laid out for me. So I started developing that, learning more about that and enjoyed that because it was more predictable. You had deadlines, but you have a lot of clients, a lot of files. It's not like working on one litigation where you're building eight hours all day, depot prep, you know, document review, you know, whatever. You have 15 minute increments of matters all over the place and servicing a bunch of different clients. I, I like that, but I quickly realized after a while, yeah, you know, third, fourth year practicing, and I would go into certain partners' offices and ask them questions. 
about my practice that I was developing, you know, substantive questions on trademark law and office actions that I'm getting on trademark matters. And they would turn to me and say, look, I don't have an answer for you. You're the expert. And that was a little surprising to me. I'm like, I'm fourth year in here and I'm an expert in something. I mean, I, so it's kind of, in a sense, hitting a glass ceiling in a different sort of sense. I mean, I just didn't have as many peers around me at the firm I was at at the time that were doing what I was doing because I think it was fairly new. I mean, people generally said, hey, you can't make a career out of being a trademark lawyer. And that's kind of funny today, right? If you even hear that, but that's again, dating myself. Oh, really? Right. And so I, I, I got an offer from a friend who went on, was another firm here in town as a boss, you know, it's Fish and Richardson, Boston-based firm. Their, their firm in the, their, their office in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis was about five years old. And they said, hey, come join our group. You know, we have a, a good group of people who do exactly what you do in the Twin Cities and nationwide, we have probably 40, 50 people who do what you do. And so, plus we'll pay you more. And so, I, you know, made that move after four years, went over there, did four years over there, learned a lot under having a, a broader peer set, but then learned a lot about patents there as well, right? It's a very, very prestigious patent firm, intellectual property firm, learned a lot about patents, you know, by doing pitches, hearing what other people were doing, and just a combination of the trademarks and the patents, how they worked together. Worked there for four years, made partner, and then decided, I always had in the back of my mind, it'd be fun to go in-house. And that's when Target had an opening and I took it. So you were eight years into the eight years into the business before you then became an in-house counsel at Target? Correct, yeah. Very cool. And maybe for those who are listening to us who may not know what Target is, we have a pretty good audience both in the U.S. and international, and, and there might be some listening that don't know. Could you just give us an overview of what Target is and where you serve and where their offices are located, et cetera? Absolutely. So fortunately... Target's main primary offices are in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, downtown Minneapolis. So it was just down the block from where I worked in private practice, where I was downtown Minneapolis. Target is a discount retailer, a multi-category discount retailer, meaning we sell just about everything, right? All the way from food to socks and underwear, toys, home, which has served us as a business really well, right? Through different downturns or as the economy changes, there's always something you can go get at Target. We are just a domestic retailer, meaning we are in all 50 states of the United States. At some point, we had Canadian operations, which we no longer have. We source like any kind of big retailer from all over the world, right? So intellectual property-wise, at least our trademark portfolio, we have protected in you know, dozens upon dozen countries throughout the world for differing reasons. Sourcing, potential sales. We've done some online ventures where we have sold online through some other platforms and marketplaces, our own brand product. But primarily, we are a domestic U.S. retailer in all 50 states. I don't know the store count, 1,500, 1,800 something stores in all, all 50 states of varying sizes. Awesome. And when you think of your role today as the chief intellectual property counsel here, is there something that you identify as, I don't know, a, a difficult task, whether it's the portfolio, whether it's the people, or whether it's the industry, what is some of that difficult tasks associated with this role you have? Yeah, I'll give you two-part answer on two fronts. Okay. One, on the substantive work area, you've kind of identified it. On the last five, six years, Target has been on a growth trajectory of growing our own brand portfolio. That means some people call it private labels. It's our house brands, the products that we're selling. And we've really had a focus to not just create, I, I don't like labels, right? Labels are something you go in a Target store and you're like, oh yeah, that's a Target. We would like these to be brands. We would like to now or in the future even for them to stand alone, to be recognizable that people come there because of the item itself. They're like, I want to get, for instance, all in motion, right? I want to get your sportswear line. I want to come in 
for your food lines because I like favorite day ice cream, right? So we want them to be brands, things that can be standalone and envisioning potentially standing outside of the four walls of a Target store. They could be sold anywhere, both online, other retailers, licensed, whatever. They could they can live on their own. And so we've been launching them 40, 50 of these own brands over the last five or six years. And so it's been a massive amount of work. So own brands, when I talk about, these are not six month lines that go away, limited time only, and then they disappear. These are things that will hopefully stand the test of time. They may be refreshed. They may be spiffied up a little bit over the years, but you know these are ones that last for a long time. And then volume, I mean, sales wise, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue to billions of dollars in revenue. So thinking of us launching 50 own brands, we're standing up 50 individual businesses. I mean, there's a lot of businesses out there that would love to have a brand that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. I was about to say, are these brands, one of them by themselves are bigger than a lot of companies as a whole? Right. I mean, exactly. They talk about unicorn companies. Oh, I hit a billion dollars in revenue. We know we're going to launch a brand that next year, I mean, like Cat and Jack was one of our kids' lines. We thought we'd do a billion, you know, ideally, 750 million, a billion in the first year. We did 2.5. You know, something right. like that. And again, I wouldn't right. quote exactly the number, but it was over $2 billion. I mean, so. Right. That's a significant brand. <laughs> and that's a lot of responsibility. I mean, right? We've got a yeah, of course. filing yeah. protection enforcement overseas. I mean, Target, as much of it as it's not well known, we're not selling overseas. We get ripped off overseas. Our Target sure. bullseye, our name Target gets, we're, we're chasing this down. I mean, we partner with you on a lot of this stuff. It's all over the place where we're recognized. And the fame of our brand and our brands get recognized and, and, and they get copied. They get infringed. That's the, uh, uh, I guess, the, the benefit or the reality of being successful is that you end up with a target on your back, so to speak. Yes. That is, people want some of that business that you have built and they want to know how to get it for free, so to speak, right? Yep, that's exactly it. So the business-wise, doing that, managing it through tough times, managing it, you know, we're, we're in a challenging economic environment, but own brands have better margins. They sell well for Target. How do we do that in a resource constrained where you're trying to be, operate efficiently and yet your portfolio is growing this large? So that's, that's the business side. And I'd say the flip side of that on a personal managerial level is managing through, yeah, post-COVID, hybrid work. What, what does it mean? I'm old school, old dog, going to the office and having to really adjust my thinking and use a new muscle that we learned through COVID. I mean, having Zoom meetings, I mean, doing webinars and podcasts like this, that things that new technology, embracing that and how to keep a cohesive team with a culture that I really enjoy on my team. You've worked with a number of folks on a team. I just, I enjoy seeing them. I enjoy interacting with them. It's a little bit different in 2D versus being in person and just the chit chat that can go on. I was going to mention, as you were talking about sort of, you know, surviving the pandemic through some of these own brands that had this cachet such that people were looking for them, even when you couldn't go into a store. But how did you guys manage this through sort of the pandemic when we think of like e-commerce versus brick and mortar and how to manage that? I know you're 90% probably brick and mortar, but you do have a very good e-commerce business as well. Yeah, I think not, not just good luck, good planning, good timing. For us, all the investments the company was making in being, I would even say, you know, it's transformed for, they use the term omni-channel, right? Yep. I think it's channel agnostic now. We don't, shouldn't be talking about channels anymore. How are you going to get the product to Daniel, right? How are you going to, how are you going to get it? How do you want to pick it up? And we had made pre-pandemic all sorts of investments on delivery models, right? So you can get your product any way you want it. We would love for you to come to our stores. We would love for you on, your, on our app or online to go to target.com and buy things, right? That will get shipped to your home. And 
most of it's like two-day shipping and free. We don't charge for that, right? Do you want it delivered right? You want it delivered to your house? Well, we bought a company called Shipped, which is, is not just for us, but for other retailers as well and other companies. They will do personal shopping for you, pretty inexpensively. You know, so they'll go in and they'll shop. And think about all the, all this application during COVID, right? You, you sure. don't want to go out. And then we did, if you want to go in the store and just pick it up in the store because you want to shop, you can pick it up at the guest servicing and we'll, we'll have it ready typically in two hours. You put in an order online, it'll be ready in two hours. And then find the final peg in this was a drive up. Huge, which we use. I mean, we have a five-year-old when she was even younger. Mom, dad doesn't want to get out of the car. You pull up to this parking lot, you pre-ordered it. Target identifies that you're in, you know, in the parking lot. They know you're there. You punch in the number of the stall that you're in. Typically, we, we aim for about two minutes that we're out to your car, loading it into your trunk and you're on your way. You don't have to step foot in the store. <laughs> I've used that myself in the winter. It's a good one. You use it all the time, but can you even imagine, boy, the timing of it was perfect for the pandemic. Yeah. When people were literally deathly afraid to come in the stores. Sure. And so we can get the product to you any which way you want to shop for convenience, for safety. And so work really well and continues to serve as well. Yeah. So let me ask you this question, sort of moving off the, uh, off that side of the business. But when you think about in the industry, this, you know, we hear a lot of phrase, you know, about whack-a-mole or things popping up. I know for you, it's a little bit of a different challenge of what tends to pop up in that whack-a-mole business, but maybe share a little bit how you think that, you know, as a solution to fight this popping up. And for you, it, it might be, you know, people trying to steal your trademarks or whatever the case may be. But how, how does that, what's your strategy, thought process from an industry? Yeah, you hit on it earlier, Daniel. When you're launching all these brands, you have so many more targets on your back, right? Each of these brands can get knocked off. Each of them raises the cachet of the overall target brand. And there are all sorts of, and you know, one of my answers is, will be crediting great partnerships because I, I have a limited resource, team resource in, in-house. But with companies like yours, suppliers of technology. I think technology will be technology and good people that can comb the internet, can find these things, bring them to us, resolve these issues to help us take things down. We don't have all the tools in-house, but have finding great partners to do that. So you, one area is enforcement, just brand enforcement. So many websites selling not legitimate merchandise, brands that are either knocking off your brands or are close too close to your brands trying to find, or even the more dangerous kind of stuff where they're impersonating Target, right? That's the whack-a-mole where we're trying to enforce against websites, setting up mm-hmm. to, to steal people's personal identifiable information, to fish stuff in the guise of looking like Target, a recruitment thing, a website that is fraudulently getting guest information, their login, login data, things like that. There's people just sitting, and especially during the pandemic, sitting at home with a lot of times on their hands, yeah, you know, with the internet and able to just set it up. And this is not just domestic, it's international. And how do you track that all down? So giving my people be really on point and understanding the practice, seeing where the trends are, but really partnering up with good service providers, technology providers like you all. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right, right? It takes some collaborative effect today. I think even as big as Target is and is, but the world of e-commerce is even bigger, right? So these things can't really be done by one person, one company, one provider, you know, it, it takes a combination of some sort of collaboration to pull this off. When you and I were talking earlier, we talked about some of the, these, I'll call them, it's probably not the right term, but these Chinese trademarks trying to I- impact your business. Maybe share a little bit about that challenge and how you manage that challenge. 
Yeah, this has been an issue that we faced kind of hand in hand when we became aware of it when we were launching all our own brands, right? We're doing the trademark searching. And if anybody's done trademark search, you go to an outside trademark service eventually to get this full search report. It's like a book with all the potential marks that could look too close to your proposed marks. And and we stumbled across one that was actually blocking a proposed brand that we're going to launch, a multi-billion dollar brand that we wanted to launch. And we actually moved away from a proposed name and went to another name because we were going to be blocked. And Digging into this, how it all triggered was we, we saw this application that had cleared examination, meaning it was going to be, it was published and it was going to soon be registered. And we looked into the file wrapper, we looked into the history of it, the specimens, everything just looked a little off. It looked photoshopped. I mean, it was fuzzy around the specimen where it looked like somebody had photoshopped on top of an item, the brand. It was a bunch of mixed up letters. It was a Chinese applicant. We launched an investigation, hired a private investigator internationally, did some, you know, telephone calls, visiting where the address listed for the filer. What we were trying to do was find out who it was and potentially purchase their rights to get out of our way, right? I mean, that's a strategy when you can't, when you can't beat them, you don't know who it is, buy them out, right? So that you own the rights and then it removes the blockage for you. Well, we couldn't find anybody. We couldn't find who this applicant was. The address is left nowhere. Email address, one, one email let to somebody who said, I don't know who this person is. So it was a ghost. And we realized we had stumbled onto something. And, and what's ironic here is whatever they were getting to file that application, we were going to pay them a lot more money to get out of our way, but we couldn't find anyone to pay, to buy, to buy their rights from. So we looked into it more, we started reading some articles. I think there was Wall Street Journal, New York Times article. It was a, a trend people started noticing, this is five, six years ago, of, of fraudulent applications, fake, bad faith applications being filed from overseas, hitting the US register. And it was made up applications, fake specimens claiming use on a laundry list, literally a laundry list of items, claiming dates of first use that weren't supported. Maybe they had a specimen from a marketplace like an Amazon and claiming they were going to use it and, and the website doesn't exist anymore. The listing is fake reviews. You couldn't buy anything. It was all mocked up. It was all, you know, spiffy to make it look legitimate, but it was easily, there was a lot of signs showing that it was fraudulent. Now we've been tracking it for years. These, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of fraudulent applications. And the impact of that obviously is when you're trying to search and clear a mark, they're blocking us. They are blocking potential marks that are out there. And, and again, Target, we're, we're big. We understand it. We're pretty sophisticated. We know what we're looking at. But the problem is, what, what about midsize, smaller companies, individual proprietors who are filing an application and they get blocked by a Chinese mark? They don't know what they're looking at. And that's their blood, sweat, and tears poured into it. And they got to start over or give up. It's been devastating. And so this is something we've not taken just to solve Target's problem because it's not Target's problem, but to fight an industry problem, a problem with the integrity of our trademark register. And from your perspective, are you making, feel like you're making inroads into that fight? Yeah, I'd say over the years, it continues to be glass half full. We see progress. I mean, people have definitely heard and taken notice and things have happened. Um, one thing we were advocates in pushing for, helping draft to some degree and even testifying on was the Trademark Modernization Act that was passed a couple of years ago. And it was the first revision in a long time as far as I can remember, of the trademark law being amended and adding some new tools for third parties to attack bad faith applications. Jury's still out on that. It hasn't been widely used because, again, it puts the burden upon us as individuals to file and pay for these actions. Uh, the trademark office has taken up some additional actions through these show cause orders. I give Commissioner Gooder a lot of credit for that we've seen some publicized actions, a good handful of them where they've gone after some of these bad actors. These are very detailed attacks, very thorough and saying, look, if you don't prove up the rights and justify what you're doing, we're going to wipe them off the register. That's great. I wish there could be doing more could be done. 
And then finally, examination. I wish examination would be better. I continue to see more and more applications get through the examination process unobjected to that are clearly not legitimate applications. They're easy to identify. Hmm, Interesting. So let me ask you a question, Stephen. Right before you, we spoke with Christina, who's the Director of External Relations on Anti-Counterfeiting for the INTA. And they run an Unreal program to sort of educate young people. And she wanted to know if you were to educate young people, what would you do from an education to young people that relating to, you know, buy authentic, buy real kind of pitch? That's a great, great question from a great friend, Christina. We go way back and she's helped on this particular issue that we have here today. My answer would be in as much as possible, letting the younger generation appreciate the impact that buying counterfeits has, right? And that's not just, hey, it's fake. But on top of that, the impact that it's having to jobs the impact that it's having to people who make the legitimate, who are hiring and people who are working on that, it impacts innovation. People who have put in at various levels their intellectual property and have invested in innovation, in differentiation and taking a shortcut to cut that off. And honestly, when these fakes, there there could be not only a bad impact on the economy, it's not just money and taking money out of people's pockets. It could be impacting because these products and when certain counterfeits could hurt people right? I mean, you, you sell a counterfeit like airbag and you put it in your car thinking it's authentic, somebody could die. Medical devices, pharmaceuticals kind of counterfeit can be bad. And then finally, when in our area of consumer products, when, when counterfeits are found out and they're confiscated, what happens? They get destroyed. And so think about the waste that goes into that. And a lot of times they're cheaper, plastic, synthetic materials, not authentic, and they have to get destroyed. And so that means they're burned or put in a landfill, something like that. So you know, if you want to buy high-end, buy high-end. But my pitch will be similarly. Target's a good alternative. We have some really nice own brands, some on-fashion trends, and they're inexpensive. So you say you can't afford it, you can afford Target. Sorry for the ad. <laughs> very, very good. No, listen, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, post our podcast, we're going to be speaking to Tariq Fahmi, the director of the Office of IP Enforcement of the U.S. State Department. Uh, he's going to be our next guest. I don't know if you know him, but whether we do or not, what would be something we want to know from the director of the Office of IP Enforcement at the U.S. State Department? What would be a question you'd want to have ask him that we could all learn something from? I would love to know how he is viewing emerging technologies, right? AI-generated, chat GPT, IP stuff that computers will create and can be done anywhere around the world has massive IP implications for infringement. I mean, because this is not a thinking computer that knows that this is too close to something. And yet people are relying upon that. And a lot of bad can be done just by typing into chat GPT questions because it just answers the question you're asking. You can do a lot of harm. There's a lot of good that's going to come out of it. It's a huge wave. Would love to hear these emerging technologies, the metaverse, crypto, all of that has intellectual property implications. And how does he think the laws are going to tackle some of these things? Now, that is a really good question. Well, we'll make sure we ask him that and we'll uh, stay tuned for his his podcast when he answers your question, Stephen. So as we wrap up our conversation today, I wanted to ask you four questions in 15 seconds. So let me know when you're ready for the rapid fire questions. You ready? Boy. Okay. Deep breath. Ready. All right. Here we go. Favorite music, band, or singer? It's always been you too. Followed them since high school and the stand of the test of time, right? This is not a trend that's going away. They continue to crank out albums. It's amazing. Love them. All right. Favorite book? Boy, sad to say as a lawyer, I don't read many books anymore because I do enough reading. 
But one that's really impacted me, impacted our law department, one where we've had a book group in the law department is one called The Happiness Advantage. Um, it talks about having a positive, resilient mindset. And it's something we've studied as a group because lawyers, legal folks are not terribly resilient and very negative. We're paid to be negative and scrutinize things. So to have that mentality of positivity, not just positive thinking, but having a positive mindset and developing more resiliency is something we all need. Thank you for the self-awareness, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) If you could eat only one food for the rest of your life, what would that food be? Okay, like a lawyer, I'm going to ask you to specify down to a particular dish or a cuisine in general. Well, you tell me, what would be the one thing you'd want to keep? Cuisine in general, I'm Chinese. I can eat Chinese food any day, every day. And I think there's such a variety that you can eat there. And that's what I've grown up on. So I'd say Chinese, whether it's takeout, fancy Chinese restaurant, or to stuff that we have here in town, like Panda Express, I can eat it all, right? Mall food, anything that you would claim to be Chinese, I'll eat it and I love it. I think I'm probably right there with you. (laughs) And I'm not Chinese, by the way. What what is your go-to resource to keep yourself updated in the world of IP brand protection, et cetera. What's your, do you have a resource you read regularly to keep yourself up to, up to snuff? I can't think of one. So I'll give you the cheesy answer and say the lawyers on my team, I have a great team. And if I have a question, they've kept up on it or we can find an answer pretty quickly to it. So we have regular chats. We status weekly. Hey, just what's new. And especially I'll go back to the emerging technology, AI generated stuff. I mean, it's, it's each other versus a single source because there's just so much information out there. So not a great answer, but I'd say the people around me is who I go to because they're the experts. They're wonderful. Your internal team is probably a great, great option, right? I mean, you got a, you got a good deep bench. Yes. So that's, that's probably a really, really good resource. Uh, well, thank you for your time today, Stephen. We appreciate it. And we'd love getting to know you a little bit better. Thanks for the opportunity. It was good chatting today. Well, it was very interesting to learn about your journey, Stephen, and your insights in the intellectual property space. I would like to highlight a couple key takeaways from our conversation. Number one, fraudulent trademark applications have been hitting the U.S. registrant for some years now. These are blocking potential marks, and Target, of course, has the resources to fight these. But what about small companies? It's an industry problem that's putting at risk the integrity of the entire U.S. trademark system. Number two. There are people all over the world with resources to counterfeit genuine products and impersonate brands online. A solution is partnering with technological solutions to take a collaborative approach to tackle this issue, because really, no brand can do it by itself. Well, that's it for us today. If you like what you heard, check out our next inspiring personal story from another hero of brand protection. You can follow us on all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, as well as Twitter and LinkedIn. Make it a good day.